You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything, casual conversations with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. This podcast was recorded in a tiny hermitage on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation, a nonprofit founded by Richard Rohr, located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Because of that, you may hear neighborhood sounds, such as sirens, dogs, and the occasional llama orgle. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst diapers, disruptions, and the shifting state of our world. This is the first of 12 weekly episodes. Today we'll be discussing the first chapter, titled, Christ is not Jesus' last name. As we talk about the themes of the universal Christ, Mm -hmm. how do you explain the Christ to a child? Wow. Well, let me start with this, and you know this as parents. The wonderful thing is, that they don't have trouble believing what you say to them, which is why you're you're taking such risks if you don't give good stuff. Mm. Um, But, you know, just like they believe animals can talk and animals can be their friends, they understand relationship, friendship, uh, through the way you've mediated friendship to them as mother or father. So... um, you know, certainly the most simple language of love, caring for you, protecting you, always, everywhere, all the time. Um, they don't have trouble believing that kind of language. To us, it all almost sounds sentimental and like a cell job. Mm. I don't think it's heard by a small child as a cell job, but a wonderful unfolding presence that they can rely upon. So any language that communicates presence, availability, caring, protection, because as you know, children do have their little fears at night and so forth. You wonder where that early fear comes from. But to be assured that uh, there's someone protecting them, uh, and they're not alone, and there's someone they can call upon. Um, yeah. I mean, they're not ready for my dang sophisticated theology of distinction between <laughs> Jesus and Christ. They don't need it yet. They don't need it. I, I think now we need it, yeah. but children don't. Yeah, it's all presence, presence. How, however, you can communicate presence mm-hmm. and caring presence. The trouble is a lot of us, and I'm not trying to be negative, but a lot of us were raised with threatening presence who's watching you and sees everything you do and knows every thought you have and and always said in a a terribly threatening way, that was not at all a good communication of the Christ presence. In fact, it was the Antichrist. Mm. It was the opposite of the experience. Mm. Yeah. 
you mentioned relationships as as being part of how we build that sense of presence mm-hmm. with children and I wonder what what relationships in your life have been part of the significant expansion into a more cosmic mm. Christ. You know, I think for myself many of the greatest recognitions haven't been theoretical. They've been concrete relationships. Yeah. I wonder um, if you could share any of the relationships that come to mind for you that helped you experience yes. the universal Christ. Yes. I think it was precisely after I had, by maybe by the intention of others, stretched myself uh, into otherness. Into uh, What came to mind this morning was, remember uh, in, when I was living in Dayton as a, uh, a theologian, one of my ministries was to go to an inner city hospital. Mm. And uh, <laughs> they did an interview with, with my approach. And they said, you're a one-man welcome wagon. And I, <laughs> you're overdoing it. Cool it. You know, <laughs> I was trying so hard to, to console and meet all these people. Mm-hmm. But it was a genuinely... Uh, Christ-soaked experience Mm. because it was my first move, really, uh, outside of the world that I had been living in Mm. of Catholics who were mostly white, um, who were mostly middle class. And I remember that passing over that that edge. How do I relate to a poor black man? and then the recognition that not only could, could I do it, but it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. That was my early Christ experience. I think the Christ uh, will always be experienced when you cross the line into otherness. If you try to pull it all into sameness, you stay with people just like me. Mm-hmm. I don't think you experience the Christ. You... Um, you, you might have some cozy Jesus experiences that you call Jesus experiences, but they're not even worthy of Jesus mm-hmm. because you're largely loving yourself while thinking you've expanded the circle of encounter. Yeah, There has to be an expanded circle or, or it isn't Christ for you, you see, yeah. And Richard, you used a phrase just a moment ago that is one of my favorite of yours, which is Christ-soaked world. What does that phrase mean to you? And what, what can we learn from, from that imagery? What I believe, and I believe the scriptures say, but we just weren't told to look for it, is that reality was christened, if I can use that word, and I know we've given from the very beginning, from the moment of its inception, Now, it's interesting that we use the metaphor of anointed, pouring oil over something to reveal its sacredness, starting with the stone of Jacob, Bethel, this is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. So we see this mounting recognition in the Bible of presence, of presence. So I'm so glad that phrase struck you, that reality is already soaked with the presence And we sought a metaphor like anointing to remind us of what was already there, to say, this is sacred. 
The, the oil doesn't make it sacred. The, the anointing of something makes you, hopefully, doesn't work a lot of the time for many people, that makes him aware this person, this rock is sacred. Mm. So we anoint not just people, but at least in the Catholic Church, we anoint the walls of churches. Huh? We anoint holy stones to say, this is presence. That's good stuff. And of course, that's the meaning of the word Christ. Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah, Messiah, the anointed one. And the trouble is that we limited that anointing to the unique body of Jesus and then didn't convince many people that was true. Mm. Because once you go on the limiting course, it's only here, it's not there, then you create argumentative Christianity, deciding what is anointed and what is not. So when I say Christ-soaked world, I, I'm talking a creation spirituality. Mm -hmm. That, well, Ephesians 1, 3, no, no, yes, Ephesians 1, 3. It's one of my favorite verses. You were chosen in Christ from the beginning. Farther on, before the world began, you were chosen. So maybe it's speaking of human election at that point. In Romans 8, he sees it in terms of nature too. All nature is, is longing to reveal the sons and daughters of God, that mm -hmm. even the natural world, as my father Francis says, his brother, son, sister moon, it's all in the family of Christ-soakedness. Mm. We just weren't trained to see it that way, very unfortunately. And now we thought we could torture animals, pollute the earth, kill people who were not Christ-soaked, because we thought it was up to us to decide. Mm -hmm. She's got the anointing and he doesn't. Mm. You cannot leave that choice to the human being. Mm. Uh, that choice comes from the divine anointing. And I don't think we were able to see that, that we would always choose to find people like us, groups like us, countries like ours to be anointed. Mm. And if you don't mind me being a bit Catholic, you know what I'm going to say. But another thing that became usually argumentative was the presence in bread and wine. Mm. Mm. It's just the same mystery. And saying it's true at the mm. elemental level. Elements contain the presence. Now, we made it too much... Well, the priest is the magician who makes the presence happen. We brought it right back to ourselves, you know. Not the honoring of presence in the elemental world of food in this case. Mm. That's good stuff. It really is. Yeah. If we'd only understood Eucharist as the, the taking of the notion of presence, not just to people, but to things. Mm. And then Augustine's notion of keep feeding people this thing, supposedly, until they know that they are what they eat and they are the body of Christ too. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is the body of Christ. But that's a mystical knowing and you'll never be able to prove that, nor do you need to, because the journey toward that seeing is the journey toward enlightenment. And it is a journey. Mm -hmm. You don't get it all in one minute. 
You get it by many moments of reverence, of respect, of, as Rumi would say, kneeling and kissing the ground. Many moments like Jacob of pouring the oil on the rock and saying, this is the gate of heaven. This is it. You know, by normal Jewish theology, that would be paganism. Yeah. Sounds like a Hindu temple, doesn't right. it? Right. Pouring oil on a rock and saying, this is the gate of heaven. Yeah. That's, I, I take that as the first concrete image of what became the Christ mystery. Well, we're so uncomfortable with this material yes. reality. Our own materiality and everything else. Uh, yeah, and, and, oh. I, and that was made so much worse by that seeming incompatibility between Christianity and science. Yes. And that yes. kind of, the way that that upheld that discomfort with materiality and um, made it easier to build theories of escaping out of this world. So that makes me think about it makes me think about the, our origin story. And what was it you were saying to me, Paul? We were talking about origin story, and you said something about comic yeah. book heroes. Yeah, I'm not a huge comic book person yeah, at right. all. But mm-hmm. um, I find the origin stories of these kind of superheroes as yes. these meta narratives to be the most fascinating, the most interesting. And there seems to be like a, a elemental primacy in those stories right. that are far more interesting than, say, stories that come later about you know, what is mm. Thor up to in movie mm. eight? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that, the importance of our origin story and how that then impacts how we view the world. And specifically for myself and, and for many of us growing up, being handed this creation story in which it all kind of boils down to a hungry woman with unfortunate timing, you know, there has to be, <laughs> there has to be something more for us uh, beyond that story that we can that can allow us to have a a greater view, and I noticed you do that in your book. You talk a lot about the importance of creation and in the beginning to oh, name this really. Christ in the beginning. Yeah. And I wondered if you could talk to us about what is the relationship between the origin story and Christ. Mm. Wow, that's a book right there. <laughs> uh, how you begin sets the trajectory. And, you know, I just said it this weekend to a conference uh, that I say, if there's any chapter or book of the Bible that's inspired, it's got to be the first chapter of Genesis. Mm. And yet, I would like to point out, isn't it interesting, even in the first and second chapter of Genesis, there's two, maybe three versions of the origin story. Right. Uh, which are all lumped together, mm-hmm. which was supposed to set us up like the four Gospels did. You know, there's not one official one. Mm. I don't know how people who had four Gospels said there's only one true interpretation. Well, there's four interpretations <laughs> of the same healing story in, in almost every healing story in the New Testament, and the same in Genesis, mm-hmm. that we have two, probably three, uh, some say four, eventually in the book of Genesis, four different accounts. Mm. So already we're, we're given inspiration, but a hint that there's not only one way to see it. This should have kept us from this horrible notion of supposedly biblical inerrancy. But as you well know, not, that was bad enough, but then we didn't really begin with our origin story. Mm. Original blessing, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It was very good, Genesis 1. But for a very perverse reason, it seems to me, 
we decided to begin with Genesis 3, the problem, the sin, eating that dang apple. Mm, bad timing. <laughs> it's, I think the human mind likes to wrap itself around a problem and then think of itself as the problem solver. See, my denomination has solved the problem by pouring water at the right time with the right words and baptizing. Think of all the fights we've had over baptism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who pours it? When do they pour it? What do they say? A child or an adult? A child or adult, yeah. And, uh, and did they really have faith or did they not have faith? Mm-hmm. It all became problem-solving Christianity. Whereas the problem really, and I'm not exaggerating, was solved in the first chapter. There is no problem. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It is very good. Mm. Well, no, it's really bad. <laughs> we, we just prefer to start with the negative. Now we know with brain studies that that is true of the human brain. Mm. That it wraps around negativity, fear, and problems. Mm. It doesn't know how to rest in contentment. That's why we treat or teach various processes of meditation mm. to learn how to rest in thisness, in nowness, in enoughness. Because you have to retrain the mind, at least at this point in history. But it must have often been that way because much of history repeated this problem mm-hmm. of loving problems. So did we, with our love of problems, did we just collapse Jesus into Christ and then leave that there as opposed to seeing Christ as something, it is good, it is good, it is good from the beginning? You know, how does that change, how does that change it for us? How does, how does um, Christ change our perspective Mm -hmm. on the origin story? Well, you said it very well. In fact, I might quote you on that. We collapse Jesus into Christ. Mm-hmm. And here's the problem with that. Now, here I am. Up, but it leaves 13.7 billion years hmm. empty of presence, empty of God. Are you, just, are you really telling me, and am I supposed to believe, that God only started talking 2,000 years ago? Or even for the at most 5,000 years ago, which is a drip in time, Mm. with the beginning of the writing of the Bible. Mm. God was not talking before we wrote the Bible. And that's why the early Franciscans believed that creation was the first Bible. Mm. Nature was the first Bible, which is stated, as you know, in Romans 1.20. Everything we need to know about God is in the world as it is created. Marvelous line. Mm. But yeah, we just, we pretty much had Jesus without Christ. And that's why I think this is such an important notion. Because then this Jesus became something that we could capture and encapsulate in our moment of time, in our Spanish culture, American culture, Mm -hmm. uh, Lutheran culture, whatever it might be. It was all too tiny. The Christ keeps Jesus from being tiny, are malleable, are uh, usable, because it's too big for the human mind to contain it or control it. That's so helpful. 
it is helpful. Yeah. If I can, yeah. I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> I just say, why didn't I say this with that clarity 40 years ago? But we're ready for it now, even though I'm sure the book is going to get a lot of pushback. Mm. Yeah. But, but I thought that from the Naked Now book. And it's the only book that I haven't got a single negative letter on. Huh. Mm. So I'm, I'm ready to be surprised that people are, are ready for a bigger frame, a bigger frame, a, a non-dual frame. Mm. That we're not lessening Jesus. We're not uh, uh, replacing Jesus with Christ. But we're saying the two notions, the two realities balance and inform one another. And fulfill one another, really, both of them. Gosh, it just changes everything. It changes everything. Yeah. It really does. That's why the initial title, as I gave, was another name for everything. Yeah. And that's Christ. Mm. And I do emphasize thing. It's not a name for every concept. Mm. Concepts yeah. are not enfleshment. Uh, the word became flesh. So Christ is precisely thingness, reification, physicality, materiality in rudimentary forms like rock and all the way from there. All the way up to our messy humanity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, following that thread, I'm I'm curious with, um, you know, the way that science and religion have been separated into two camps, it's it's ridiculous. And in a way... It seems like part of what you're offering in this this book is the how the universal Christ kind of can heal that yeah. divide. Can you. can you speak more to that? I'd love to. Oh. Do you see how because we didn't understand embodiment, incarnation, uh-huh. which is our only real unique message in Christianity, we we split again with our dualistic mind from those who analyzed the physical world. They were beneath us. They were called scientists. Mm. They only knew (laughs) about physicality. We know about spirituality. (laughs) What we fail to recognize is that the spirit was hiding itself, revealing itself, knowing itself in and through physical reality. Mm. If we would not have made that split, uh, we would have been much less eager to diminish or dismiss the scientific mind. They were knowing what could be seen with the eye. We were knowing, we hope, although not very well it seems, the meaning, Mm. the full meaning of what we're seeing with the physical eye. Mm. But those are not in intention. Well, maybe they're intention, but they're not in competition with one another. Right. Once we know the physical world is revealing the spiritual world, then, my gosh, engineers, mechanics, and scientists are our friends. Mm-hmm. We were talking a moment before about that marvelous Ken Burns show on PBS last night about the um, Mayo Clinic mm-hmm. and how in Rochester, Minnesota, and how much it was formed by the faith of these Franciscan nuns. I was so proud of them. They kept saying it all the way <laughs> through the whole show. These nuns were Franciscans mm. and who saw no problem with uh, working together with doctors who were secular. 
It was a wonderful message, you know. The doctors were secular, the nuns were spiritual, but they loved and trusted one another and produced, by most accounts, the greatest hospital on the earth, Mm -hmm. you know, because neither of them asked the other to compromise. The nuns respected the physical, medical training of the doctors, and for some wonderful reason, uh, Dr. Mayo and his two sons respected and needed the love and the devotion of the the nuns who at that point were all the nurses. All mm. the nurses were nuns. So they brought a different kind of devotion. None of them were doing it for salaries. Wow. <laughs> None of them were doing it so they could help the poor from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the, the, the thing today where only the rich get health care. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm off the point. Now. Uh, it's quite <laughs> the embodiment it, of it what really you're saying. It really is. Yeah. Of, of yeah. The, the spiritual and the science. And I, I'm I'm really moved by that phrase you just used to say that we don't need to compromise one for the other. You know, yeah. I think that's that's yeah. really a huge problem that so many of us have with the with the frameworks and the the uh, religious paradigms that we've been handed is that we were given them and asked to compromise our intellectual yes, integrity yes. or our love of this world yes. or our love of creation. And and so I, I find that to be really helpful to think that there could be a Christianity in which I don't have to compromise my love yeah, of science yes. or this world in any way. Oh, my love of my brain. Yeah. Jesus does say to love God with your whole mind. Right. <laughs> the mind is not diminished. Mm-hmm. And here's the, the irony of the whole thing. We became so threatened by rationalism after the Enlightenment, the scientific method. And then in the strangest and most silly kind of way, we took on our own form of rationalism to compete with this mind that we hated. And we lost what I would call the contemplative mind, our unique access point. I mean... Biblical fundamentalists, I know this sounds like a contradiction, they're actually rationalists. And what I mean by that, they create a little frame inside of which there's a certain kind of logic. Oh, it makes, uh, yeah, yeah, I lived it. It, yeah, made, yeah. it made perfect sense when I was in it. Uh-huh. As long as you stay in that frame and don't talk to anybody outside of it, mm-hmm. you're actually insisting on reason, mm-hmm. not faith, right. while calling it faith. Mm-hmm. Right. That's... That's the trap that fundamentalist religion is in. It, it actually has huge control needs. Oh, yeah. And, and reason has huge control needs. Faith doesn't. Mm. It lets, and that's what gives it free access, open access. Mm. It isn't preoccupied with controlling the data that are, that's coming in. So it allows you to be much more patient and kind, mm. frankly. It should. But that's not the religion we have today. Mm-mm. Most people do not associate, forgive me, Christians with being patient and kind. They don't. Right. Which shows we're our, we're our own kind of very degraded rationalism. Yeah. yeah. Or, even, or even being comfortable being human. Yeah. You know, we spend so much time avoiding our messiness and our yeah. faults and our failures and, and disguising our disguising them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which maybe to the first question is part of why I'm having so much difficulty in my thirties is that 
I'm coming about full circle into a full acceptance of my humanity, maybe even for the first time. And it's it's and very it'll different. Never stop. Right. <laughs> I still feel I'm doing that at 75. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Accepting my humanity, seeing my humanity, and daring to believe that it could be beloved of God. Mm. Isn't it? It never stops. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's good to know that the road ahead is more of the same in a way. Like it constant yeah. practice. I don't think it changes. It just you get more practiced at trusting it, mm. allowing it, and not needing it to be perfect or right. Mm. Even by your own criteria. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, perfect and right. Boy, that that just springs to mind the the, the frameworks of uh, my own Christian upbringing of thinking that how I identify as a Christian was knowing who's in and who's out. Of course. And then, I, <laughs> you know, in this journey of more inclusivity, it's been a wonderful unfolding. Mm. And I think, you know, you've been drawing that roadmap for a lot of folks. And I'm curious for you, Richard, how did you go from into a more inclusive framework where you could dare to say things like, God loves things by becoming them? (laughs) I quote that three times in the book, don't I? Mm. Or I say that. I don't know if I read it somewhere else. I don't think I did. If I did, forgive me. Uh, but I, I was so proud of myself when I, I came up with that verse. God loves things by becoming them. Uh-huh. That's a good one. Uh, well, it is a good one, mm-hmm. wherever it came from. Because I think it's ultimate truth. Mm. You know, well, it's mirrored already in the Trinity. God loves uh, God the Father, just to use Trinitarian classic language. God loves the Son by being one with the Son. So you've got the pattern. The Son loves the Spirit by being one with the Spirit, but giving the Spirit. So it's becoming and giving, becoming and giving, handing over and receiving endlessly. So I I think it was reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity. Then, moving out from that, reflection on the belief in incarnation, that he loved humanity by becoming humanity. But then pretty much we stopped the cycle there, Mm. you know. And we all worshipped, we Christians, the body of Jesus, and we're real happy that Jesus came there, our God came there into that body, but uh, we just were not ready to expand it. And for me, that's the whole point. You've heard me talk a lot about moving from the personal to the universal, Mm -hmm. the concrete to the universal. Mm -hmm. The first 2,000 years of Christianity, we largely were in awe of the concrete. And I'm going to try to say that in a positive way. I don't think there was any ill will or it took all of the effort we could to kneel and kiss the ground before the presence in this one little baby in Bethlehem. Mm. But, uh, and we did the same thing with, we Catholics, with the Eucharist, took all of the faith we could to dare to believe that the divine presence was in a piece of bread. So we worship the bread. When, you know, even in our own canon law, we said, sacramenta pro populis. The sacraments are for the sake of the people. They're not an end in themselves. Uh, Mm. They're for the sake of the transformation of people. But often they just became the exercises of priests. 
So we would be in awe of this magical priestly class who could, who could bring the divine presence to us. Mm. Uh, and that's what's falling apart now. Thank God. Mm. Yeah. This idolatry of the medium instead of the accessing of the message. Mm. Right. And you Protestants did it with the Bible. We Catholics did it with the church and the priesthood. But it's the same idolatry. Yeah. It's the same loving the medium instead of the message. Right, right. Yeah. And Richard, you've been talking about uh, previous to this about how the some of the same things you wrestled with in your 30s, you continue to wrestle with now. Oh, yeah. Who do you struggle to include now as you've grown in this mm. inclusive framework? Is there uh, <laughs> <laughs> anything come to mind? Well, <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, I'm sure, if I be totally honest, it's people who are like me at my worst. Mm. Righteous people, judgmental people, overly zealous people, all of which I am. And when I see it in other people, I have a very hard time accepting it. Mm. Uh, A pharisaical Christian, a righteous Christian. And then I transfer that to the political sphere Mm. when uh, a whole group of politicians on our uh, present American political scene can never admit they're wrong can never even laugh I mean there's some of them I swear I'm waiting for them once to crack a (laughs) smile they can't and you know when you're hiding behind loads of illusion, you don't have time to smile anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I see through that because I'm so damn serious. But then I have a hard time loving it mm. and forgiving it in mm. other people. Mm. You know, little people, humble people, sincere people like you. <laughs> no trouble. That takes no effort whatsoever. But give someone who's rigid and righteous... And I just, I need divine grace mm-hmm. to, to know how to see Christ in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're a huge blockage. You know, I can almost get to the point where I can fully embrace an incarnational worldview, like you're talking mm-hmm. about. And, and I'm, I'm so moved by your humility and naming that what bothers you about other people or what really, oh. what triggers you, you say is something that you see in yourself. Oh. It's and, my worst self. All yeah. The time, and know? and so for me, you know, where you say this this beautiful phrase that a, a Christian is one who can recognize Christ in everyone and everyone and everything. Mm. And I'm I can almost do that, except when it comes to that <laughs> humiliating mirror yeah, toward yeah, myself yeah, mm-hmm. of my own shit and yeah, shortcomings. Yeah, and sure. you know, so so what helps you embrace your own incarnation, I guess? I wonder if it's not a, a necessary tension to be the, the pushback against any glib thought that you are enlightened, yeah. converted, saved, loving. Mm-hmm. Just use, I, I, I get to see every day how I'm not loving. I, I had Mass this morning at the parish church down in the corner, all dressed up at 7 o'clock. And... Um, there were several people I had a hard time loving for very judgmental reasons on my side. These people who were the most pious 
uh, insist on falling to their knees at communion time, and they're the least involved in the church. They do no service. But when they're there attending a service, they're the most pious of all. I just, I could not love them. Mm. And I, I asked, okay, Lord, let me let positive energy flow toward that person. But it, it, I think you have to have those kinds of resistance mm. to make that choice to plug into the bigger source. Mm. Mm. I, Richard, Can't do, it. do not have the grace to love this lady on her humble knees in front of me, <laughs> receiving on the tongue uh, and clearly dramatizing to the whole church that I am very authentic, mm. you know. Mm. So I judge, in my mind, she's inauthentic. I hate that hardness of heart in me, even if it's only momentary. I think that has to happen. Mm. I don't know any other way. Mm -hmm. You'll keep relying upon mercy choosing grace, surrendering to love, unless you see its incapacity in yourself, mm. Mm. its non-presence in yourself. Mm. So that's what you've heard me say years ago. Sin is part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we think we're ever going to get rid of it, yeah. I, I, sin is part of the deal. <laughs> you've got to not do it to learn what it means to do it right mm -hmm. or to have it be done to you mm -hmm. in a better way. It really helps me, Richard, think about one way that I can embrace the universal Christ beyond just a concept but in my own life as embracing my shortcomings, my failures, my you know moments of I can't do it as an opportunity mm -hmm. to rest in, in something bigger. Um, that's really helpful for me. Thank Good. you. That makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to continue to work on my plan for perfection. So, <laughs> now, uh, Richard, we wanted to close out this conversation by asking you the question, where have you seen or experienced Christ this week? This week? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to go back, maybe it's because it's just a few hours ago, to that same Mass this morning. At... Other people in the church, I was able to uh, deeply respect and love. The flow was natural, was immediate, was drawn out of me by their sheer goodness. So I, I think that's often the way we're drawn into the Christ mystery, where it's pulled out of us by the beauty, the goodness, or the truth of another situation or another person. Mm. But... How is it a Christ experience, if this makes sense, is when I surrendered to it, allowed the flow to happen, I experienced a leap of joy. Whereas when I resisted it in the lady who had fallen to her knees <laughs> and received communion on her tongue, I didn't experience a leap of joy. Now, mm. let me explain. I think when you, when you see Christ, when you're in the flow, you experience what Paul calls in Galatians the fruits of the Spirit. Mm. The second fruit of the Spirit, he lists his joy. Well, I just got to be selfish and honest about it. When I allow the flow to happen and can see Christ, as I did in some of the people in church this morning, there I felt joy. Mm. When I stopped that flow and judged this woman 
who might be suffering a great deal, who knows, you know, and her fall to her knees might be entirely authentic. But I had no joy, I just had a hard heart for a second, a hard, cold heart. So I experienced Christ already this morning when I let the flow happen unresisted and resisted my own judgments, my own analysis, Mm -hmm. my own positioning up and down, right and wrong. Once I get into that positioning, I'll always find a way to dismiss people who are somehow, by my criteria, inferior, inadequate. Mm -hmm. So you see, I'm just as bad as the supposed Pharisees that that I hate so much. So I, but I see that Phariseeism in me. When I see Christ in people and do not try to position them up or down, I experience joy. Mm. So if joy is the fruit of the Spirit, then I got to trust that is the true seeing. Do you, you follow me? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's the true seeing. Because there was no joy when my heart was hardened, yeah. however momentary it was. You know. There are actually several people who were driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them are sitting across from me right now. Yeah, for example. <laughs> for example, these two questioners who, who will not shut up. <laughs> Just let, let me get off my day. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you're, you, welcome. you're welcome. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to hear more about these ideas as part of an online community, consider participating in the live webcast of our spring conference, March 28th through the 31st. For details and to register, visit cac.org slash events. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.